In order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that possible. So go to podsurvey.com slash artofman and take a quick anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way, we can bring on advertisers you won't want to skip. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash artofman, A-R-T-O-F-M-A-N, podsurvey.com slash artofman. Thanks for your help. McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you're a Tolkien fan, you know, Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, or you're a C.S. Lewis fan, you probably have heard of the Inklings. If you haven't heard of the Inklings, you're in for a treat. This was a, a literary group that both Tolkien and Lewis belonged to for over three decades at Oxford, where they got together one night a week to discuss and critique each other's work, but as well as talk about philosophy, religion, myths, etc., etc., while smoking pipes and drinking uh, adult beverages. Uh, it was like a like a little men's group. It was only men, all men. Anyways, my guests today on the podcast have written a biography of this group. It's called The Fellowship, The Literary Lies of the Inklings. Their names are Philip and Carol Zaleski. They're a married couple. And today on the show, we're going to discuss the members of the Inklings, Tolkien, Lewis, also some of the more lesser known but who individuals, but also who had a profound impact on American literature in other ways, uh, Owen Barfield and Charles Williams. And we'll also discuss the lasting impact of the Inklings on a religion in the West as well as literature in the West. Great discussion. Uh, so without further ado, Philip and Carol Zaleski. Philip and Carol Zaleski, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. Uh, so you two are a husband-wife team, wrote a book about the Inklings. Now, I know a lot of our listeners know who the Inklings are, have heard of them, and are big fans of two of the members. But for those who aren't familiar, can you tell us who, what were the Inklings and who belonged to this little group? You want to dive in, Carol? Or <laughs> okay. Yeah. We're in different rooms, so we can't signal to each other. But I'd be happy to start out on that. Um, so the Inklings, was a, that was a literary club, um, a fellowship is how we like to think of it, um, which is perhaps a little runs a little deeper than the affiliations you might have in a club, and um, it was founded um, actually uh, not by uh, Tolkien and Lewis themselves, but by an undergraduate named Edward Tangy Lean, uh, brother of the filmmaker David Lean at Oxford. Um, but Tolkien and Lewis and a few other uh, like-minded friends had been gathering since the late 1920s for literary conversation. They took over uh, from the group called The Inklings that was founded by Edward Tangy Lean in, in, uh, late in 1933, and they used to meet in uh, C.S. Lewis's rooms in Maudlin College on Thursday evenings to read their works in progress to each other. And then socially, they would meet in various pubs on Tuesday mornings, most likely. Um, and that went on until Lewis died in, in, on the same day as JFK in 1963. So it was about 30 years of gatherings um, with a variety of people joining. Right. So it was a literary group. And, and yeah, C.S. Lewis, J.R. Tolkien, everyone knows who, a lot of people know who they are. Um, mm -hmm. seen Lord of the Rings. You guys know who Tolkien is. 
Um, but you started off the book talking about um, sort of the, the atmosphere at Oxford. I thought this was really interesting. I didn't know much about this, but there was this real culture of club creation. Like there was, it seemed like there was a club for almost anything and everything uh, at Oxford at the time. And the members of the Inklings belong to other clubs, not just the Inklings. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this um, culture of creating clubs and what kind of clubs people could find at Oxford during the early part of the 20th century? Yeah, well, uh, as you say, the, the, the clubs were innumerable and both uh, Tolkien and Lewis were avid members of, these, of many clubs. Uh, I think I'd start by pointing out that uh, this goes back to Tolkien's teenage years when he formed a club called the Tea Club and Barovian Society uh, devoted uh, to, uh, he and his friends, uh, so three or four close friends had decided to join this, form this club uh, to uh, bring goodness and honesty and virtue and purity to Western civilization. So Tolkien at a very early age was club oriented. Um, Lewis dove in when he, uh, when he went to Oxford uh, clubs that they belonged to included, um, uh, Lewis belonged to an English faculty club called the cave. Uh, Tolkien belonged to, uh, oh gee, I wonder if I can remember the name, something called the checkers club, I think. Right. Um, the SA He founded club. that one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he joined the debating society, a club called the dialectical society, so there were all sorts of clubs. Uh, eventually, he and Tolkien, when they, uh, when they first became friends, uh, formed a club called the Cold Biters, uh, which li- literally means uh, men biting coal. And it's, it's a reference to um, ancient Icelandic bards. And this was a society devoted to Norse um, mythology and Norse literature. And then it all blossomed in the Inklings itself. Um, and while they were writing the great works, they also belonged to other clubs. I think just, just to underscore what Phil was saying about the, um, the ubiquity of clubs at Oxford, there's also a long tradition of that just in English culture. And we talked about that in the book, that there were forerunners to these clubs. Um, there's a club that... Um, called the Friday Street Club that Ben Johnson and John Donne belonged to. Keats even dedicated a poem to it. And there was the Scriblerus Club that had Jonathan Swift and Alexander Pope. And we really were drawn to the club, which was founded by Samuel Johnson and the painter Sir Joshua Reynolds and had an amazing group of men. Edmund Burke was in it, Adam Smith, um, Asiatic Jones, um, and it was similar in many ways to the Inklings. That is, there's no platform for the club. It's just a place to go and hang out with like-minded people. So, I mean, it sounds like the Inklings was a, a legacy of enlightenment. Because the way you described it, it sounded very much like, uh, you know, Benjamin Franklin starting the Mutual Improvement Society. Here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And in fact, uh, C.S. Lewis is often compared to Samuel Johnson, who is the great enlightenment figure in, uh, in, in English history. Okay. And is this, does this, uh, club culture still exist at Oxford? 
You know, I looked at the uh, Oxford University website. Um, there's a long, long list of clubs and societies um, and debating groups which have official sanction, but in that respect, they're not private clubs. Um, I think that the, the era of the private men's club is faded. I think maybe because it may seem to some people elitist or exclusive or that a kind of multicultural and co-ed environment um, seems to make it look like a thing of the past. I'm not sure that, I mean, I don't think it's entirely a thing of the past, but I think that makes inroads into club culture. Right. And that was interesting too about the Inklings. They had a very strict no women rule. I think that's almost unstated. It's just an assumption um, that, that you would, that these would be sex segregated clubs. Um, there was, you know, stories to circulate about Dorothy L. Sayers trying to get into the club and banging on the door and not being let in, but that's, that's apocryphal. So I know most people who are listening are probably familiar with um, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, but there's two other members of the Inklings that you highlight and go into deep, great detail about their biographies, Owen Barfield and Charles Williams. And honestly, before I read, what, can you tell us a little bit about their, what they did, their, their influence on, I guess, English literature or academics at Oxford? Well, sure. Uh, I'd say William, Charles Williams is uh, by far the better, better known of the two because he was a novelist um, who published um, uh, quite a number of uh, what people refer to as supernatural shockers. These are uh, thrillers. Uh, or mystery novels, or uh, then always involve supernatural events. Uh, they were quite popular at the time, and they're still popular. There are many avid uh, Williams fans uh, around these days. Uh, Williams was a, uh, uh, in a way, a self-taught man. Uh, he uh, he worked at Oxford University Press most of his adult life. Uh, became a, a well-known editor there and befriended Lewis and then the other t- uh, Inklings, um, in addition to his, uh, his spiritual shockers. He uh, wrote some marvelous books on Dante and on Anglican history and on poetry. He considered himself a poet for, first and foremost. Uh, Barfield is a more obscure figure. Uh, he uh, was a specialist in the history of language, uh, in the history of words, and how words change over the centuries. And he had this really brilliant idea, which amounts to the reverse engineering of words, where you track the history of words back in time until you get to their primordial meaning. Um, and through this, he thought he could trace the history of human consciousness as well. Uh, so as you can imagine, his books are a little more abstruse, uh, obscure, and uh, even occult than uh, than Williams are. Uh, but he also has a somewhat of a following, um, some very important people, uh, Saul Bellow. Nobel Prize winner, most notably, have been uh, students of his or disciples of his. Uh, so th- these are the two most prominent inklings apart from Lewis and Tolkien, and that's why we chose to focus on them as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I guess Barfield, I thought it was interesting. Like, he seemed like his entire life, 
sort of, uh, I don't know, envious maybe, but a little envious of the success. It wasn't later on, it wasn't until later on in life that he actually had some renown and some success. He experienced that. Yeah, it makes, it, it makes for a beautiful story in a way because uh, um, it's a great tale of someone who is in the shadows for most of his life. A Barfield uh, didn't have great skills as a fiction writer, couldn't make a living as a writer, um, you can hardly make a living as a writer of the historian of uh, language. So he uh, went into the law. And while Tolkien and Lewis and many of the other Inklings were basking in public acclaim, uh, poor Barfield was toiling away in his London law office, you know, dealing with um, real estate matters and torts and so on. Uh, but eventually, in the 1960s, People started reading his books, uh, mostly at first because he was known as C.S. Lewis's best friend. Uh, and what, he came to America, Barfield did, and started uh, giving lecture tours around America and teaching at American universities. And uh, these were a smash success, both, both the teaching and the lecture tours. And people then started reading Barfield's own books, and they discovered that in addition to being Lewis's great friend, Barfield himself had very intriguing ideas to offer, uh, and ideas that fit in rather well with the um, tenor of the 1960s and 1970s, because uh, he was an esoteric thinker. He was interested in alternative uh, descriptions of, of uh, history. He rejected Darwinism, for example. Um, he, uh, he was a follower of a, of a German um, spiritual teacher named Rudolf Steiner. Uh, so Barfield came into his own just when the other Inklings were dying out. And in fact, he lived to be 99 years old, so he had a chance to savor his, his late triumph. Yeah, it was great to see. Like, it kind of worked out for him in the end. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, so you, you mentioned that there were other members of the group, like these are the four most prominent, uh, Lewis, Tolkien, Barfield, and Williams, but it seemed like also the, the membership of the Inklings was very fluid. Uh, there was the, uh, the critic and biographer, uh, Lord David Sissel, um, an immensely attractive figure, an important man of letters, uh, who also had ties to the Bloomsbury group, which had a very different literary and, and uh, cultural mindset. Um, but he was that sort of a generous mind that he could live in both worlds. There was an important Chaucer scholar and theater and film director, Neville Coghill, who um, actually gave Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor their start in Oxford theatrics. Um, and there was a Dominican named Gervais Matthew, scholar, and an English Don named Hugo Dyson, very rambunctious fellow. Um, there was also um, Lewis's brother, Warney, um, who uh, presided at Inkling's meetings, poured the drinks. Um, actually, he himself struggled with alcoholism, but he was a very kind man, and uh, he also wrote he wrote histories of 17th century France. And then, there were, and then a young member was John Wayne, who uh, later became known as one of the group called the Angry Young Men. Yeah, and also Tolkien's son, Wayne, as well. And Tolkien's son, right. Yeah, who's, who's still alive and is the last living Inkling. I'm, I'm curious. So they had all these members that would come and join, but there seemed like these four were like the core. I'm curious, like what brought these, what drew these men together? Because it seems like they come from very different backgrounds, right? You have Tolkien the Catholic with 
Lewis, the atheist turned Anglican. Uh, you have Barfield, who was really into esotericism, and, uh, and you had Williams, who was a poet. I mean, what was it that drew these men? What was the common bond between all of them? Well, there are several common bonds. First of all, perhaps first and most importantly, they were all writers, and not only writers, but uh, very active and productive writers. The Inklings group really was a writing club. They write each other's unpublished uh, manuscripts, works in progress, and then they severely criticized each other's works. And this criticism uh, uh, improved the works of all, all the members. Uh, so that's something they had in common. In addition, they were all Christians. Uh, Lewis said explicitly to Charles Williams that being a Christian was was a requirement for joining the group. Um, they were romantics, pretty much to a man. They loved language. They loved stories. Uh, they loved fantasy, which set them off from the... Uh, you know, the, the accepted literary views of, of the day, and um, that's something that united them. They were united then in adversity as well as in comradeship. Um, I'm curious. Yeah, so you, I think, oh, go ahead. Yeah, Karen. also I would add anti-modernism to that, or uh, not in a kind of, not in a reactionary anti-modernism, but a desire to see the world re-enchanted through its connection to, uh, to the traditions and values of the past. Yeah, that was really interesting, particularly when you talk about C.S. Lewis and his literature. Uh, he wrote sci-fi. A lot of people don't know that, or they forget that. Mm. Um, yeah, although it really was uh, science fantasy more than science fiction. Um, it was just, um, it was a way for him to present mythological and spiritual ideas on uh, on a broader canvas. He set them on other planets, but... Um, I don't think they would be considered anything like uh, hardcore science fiction. Right. But it, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but is that that theme of like, they're, they, they were sort of anti-modern, but they wanted to recapture I guess, some of the essence of it? Yeah, that's how we look at it. It's an, it's an effort at uh, what we call recovery rather than reaction. So recovery really brings into the present um, what is worth saving from the past, and what is still li a, still li a living tradition? So it's not a, a it's not antiquarianism, and it's not mere nostalgia, but it's a sense that there's a real live tradition that perhaps we've we're in a state of amnesia, we've forgotten that it's there, but it's still uh, it's still viable for us. And I, that's one thing with Owen Barfield helped with actually. He he convinced Lewis that the ideas of the past um, can be. I guess evaluated on their own merits, and uh, that it's only chronological snobbery that makes us think that ideas that were uh, life-giving in the past are no longer available to us. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits started at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a long-time podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. 
a lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made to measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code manliness to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com promo code manliness. All right. If you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the Masterclass on Negotiation with Chris Voss. Great. Phil, you alluded a little bit to the, the dynamic. It was a writing club. They'd come to each other. They'd, someone would read a work. There was criticism. I mean, do we know what a typical meeting was like or like the dynamic in a meeting? Do we have records of that? Yeah, we have diary, diary entries by uh, mostly by Lewis's brother, Warney Lewis, who uh, 
near the end of his life, uh, lamented several times that he hadn't kept careful notes. I think he said if he realized that what he had had, uh, what he'd been a part of, he would have recorded every meeting in detail. Uh, instead, we just have um, a brief accounts of meetings, but we have many of those. And we know that uh, meetings would start, well, these were evening meetings for the most part, at least the ones in Lewis's digs of Maudlin College, which were the more important meetings. Those are the ones in which literary work actually went on. The Tuesday morning meetings were uh, more just general socializing. So they would, they would all gather in the evenings and uh, Warney would uh, take coats and would settle uh, members down with a drink. And then uh, C.S. Lewis would ask if anyone had something to read. And generally someone did and it would be read. And then the comments would start. Uh, they also uh, discussed ideas, uh, all manner of ideas, uh, whether dogs go to heaven, uh, <laughs> the nature of hell. Um, you know, if, if I had Warney's diaries in front of me, I could tell you about 30 or 40 amusing things they, they discussed. Uh, there was uh, a lot of friendship, a lot of rivalry, a lot of caustic comments, especially by Hugo Dyson, uh, who could be very funny, but also could be very nasty in his um, reflections on other people's works and ideas. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of laughter. Uh, I think the, the, the group lasted so long because people really enjoyed the meetings. They enjoyed uh, laughing with each other, telling stories, uh, drinking together, just having a good time together. And then, so, I mean, when they did offer criticism, like, did they really go after the person uh, with, like, gloves off? I mean, I think nowadays yeah. when yeah. people have, like, reading, like, you know, writer's groups, like, everyone's, like, everyone wants to be really polite, but I imagine that's not what happened here. No, <laughs> they weren't really polite. Sometimes they could be, well, Hugo Dyson could be quite vulgar, but I'll refrain from repeating what he said about uh, Tolkien's elves. Um, Tolkien, uh, for his part, could be quite critical of Lewis because he felt that Lewis was trying to write the kind of mythopoeic um, uh, imaginative literature that Tolkien himself was dedicated to, but that Lewis was kind of slipshod about it and didn't really work at building out a completely internally coherent um, mythos when he was creating imaginary worlds. And Tolkien had very high standards about that. No one ever before or ever since Tolkien has accomplished what he did in terms of uh, internally consistent, believable, invented mythologies. So, um, so he would criticize Lewis for that. Um, but another thing they did for each other, though, was encouragement. I mean, when in terms of outsiders, they would circle the wagon, so they could be quite critical of one another. But, for instance, when Lewis um, tried to get his first science fiction fantasy novel published, Out of the Silent Planet, um, the readers' reports were pretty bad, and the publisher was pretty negative about it until Tolkien intervened on Lewis's behalf and praised it to the, to the hilt, even though privately with Lewis he had had some serious criticisms of it. But again, when, when they're against the world, against the modernist literary establishment, or simply trying to get their work out there and get it appreciated, they would review each other's works and they would write to publishers and intercede for one another. Yeah, this encouragement, in fact, that they offered each other 
Uh, it was uh, especially important for Tolkien, who's always very hesitant about exposing his great mythology to the public, and um, who always had doubts about Lord of the Rings, which took him an eternity to, to write. And if uh, without Lewis's constant encouragement and goading, uh, we wouldn't have the Lord of the Rings today. And uh, thanks to Lewis, we do. Yeah, I was surprised how long it took him to write that. <laughs> I mean, it just seemed like decades yeah. he was working on it. Yeah. Well, the problem yeah. was that it started out to be, it was meant to be a sequel to The Hobbit. The Hobbit had been a book that he had written without great agony because it started with just telling stories to his kids. That came naturally. Um, but he had been working, since he was a young man in the trenches in the First World War, he'd been working on a private mythology and, and invented languages to go with it. And that's what he really wanted to publish. But instead, the publishers were interested in, you know, the, uh, the new Hobbit novel, the Hobbit sequel. So he's tr trying to write the Hobbit sequel, but the mythology keeps working its way into that. And it was very hard for him to integrate these two dramatically different kinds of creative work. In The Lord of the Rings, you can see some of the, the, the strains, the sort of places where it didn't knit together perfectly. You, you mentioned that you know he was working on this during World War One. That's another thing that all these men had in common, or for most of them, they all served yes. during World War One. Did that common bond like serve as some like a way to foster some camaraderie between all of them? Well, it was tremendously important. Uh, in fact, we in our book, The Fellowship, we look upon, we look at all these writers most especially Lewis and Tolkien, as war writers. Uh, sure, they were fantasists, but they were also war writers. All of them wrote about war in their fiction, um, and it's uh, ever-present in Lord of the Rings. You can't understand Lord of the Rings without knowing about Tolkien's experience in the war. Um, and sure, they also they shared it with the other Inklings, uh, some of the younger ones uh, only experienced World, World War II, I suppose. That was certainly true of Christopher Tolkien. Uh, but they all had war experience, or most of them had war experience. Even the ones who didn't get to actively fight, like Williams and Barfield, uh, played a part in the war somehow. Yeah, and I think the, you know, the question you raised earlier about the maleness of this club, I think of interest... Um, to your readers and listeners, um, I think that has a lot to do with it. Tolkien wrote that by 1918, all but one of his close friends had died. These uh, men experienced both the, the male camaraderie and bonding of the war and the severe loss of having friends fall to the left and to the right and to the front and to the back of them during the war. So when they returned from the war, they had every reason to prize male fellowship. It was a precious and a precarious and a very, you know, damaged um, uh, gift. Yeah, I think I remember there's a line where Lewis talks about, I guess that's sort of him relishing male camaraderie, where he says he, one of the best sounds in the world is like the sound of male laughter. Yeah, his favorite yeah. sound, adult male laughter. Adult male laughter. And that is a great sound. It is, because you don't uh, hear you know, it all I, that often. I teach at a woman's college, and I try to, I try to present that in a way that, that my students will be sympathetic to it, and they generally are, because that is a special thing. You, you really don't hear it all that often, because it's very rare where men, older men, adult men who are married, get together mm -hmm. and have a good time.
Yeah. Of course, it's a, it's a good way to escape from the domestic right. <laughs> situation, too. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little more about Lewis and Tolkien, because I think their relationship is really interesting. Because it, as I read the book, it seemed that it was, it ebbed and flowed throughout the years, and that there was a, a bit of strain there uh, between the two. I, I got the impression that the strain was because both of these men had high expectations on what friendship meant. Um, can you tell, talk a little bit about what each, how each man viewed friendship and the role it should play in a, in a person or particularly a man's life? Hmm. You want to tackle that girl? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, Lewis, you know, wrote a book called The Four Loves, in which one of the loves he talks about is friendship. And in that book and in other places, too, he's he's the one that kind of articulated a a theory of friendship, which is that, um, especially male friendship, uh, what characteristic of it is that they're not really focused on each other. They're focused on a common interest, a common, a common ideal. And you, you can see this in Tolkien's teenage friendship that Phil was talking about, the Tea Club and Barovian Society. They, they, ha- they were really dedicated to something beyond themselves. And so um, dedicated as they were to uh, shared ideals outside of simply their own um, personalities, um, they could still have friction that is the result of, of differences in their personalities. And, you know, when uh, women come into the picture, it's kind of like Yoko Ono breaking up the Beatles, you know, um, or not, well, causing tensions. Um, they, uh, they had very different life situations. Tolkien had, uh, was very uncomfortable when, when Lewis um, got together with this divorcee, Joy Davidman, didn't approve of that relationship. There were a number of things Lewis did that Tolkien didn't approve of. They had religious differences, too. Tolkien felt that Lewis never totally overcame his anti-Catholicism from his Belfast uh, background. But still, the friendship uh, was sustained over the decades, ebbing and flowing, as you said, but it was sustained. Uh, it's interesting uh, to look at the Lord of the Rings in this, uh, with this in mind, Because The Lord of the Rings, as well as being a war tale, is also a tale of friendship, of course. And in fact, a friendship not only among uh, people who had different religious views, but uh, people of different (laughs) species. Uh, Elves, hobbits, dwarves, and human beings. and they had tensions, as we know uh, from the book and from the films, uh, simply by their uh, species differences. But nonetheless, uh, the fellowship remained. And I think that's, in a way, an account of the Inklings as well. Yeah. And I'm curious, like, what do you think their legacy is? I mean, I, I think we all know, like, their literary legacy for C.S. Lewis or Tolkien. Um, like, where do we still see, like, that was because of the, it wasn't because of the individual. It was like, we can look at something either in Christianity or in literature, and we can say, it wasn't just Tolkien that had that influence. It wasn't just Lewis. It was like, it was the dynamic of the group that had that influence. Like, if it weren't for the group, that would not have happened. Is there anything that you all can point to? Well, I, I think that it, it, in certain ways, they had different sectors of influence. So Lewis became the leading Christian writer of the 20th century, certainly the most influential public figure um, 
bringing about uh, countless conversions among intellectuals and and um, all sorts of people um, as a popular voice. Um, Tolkien, who was not so comfortable with that aspect of Lewis's legacy, um, more or less uh, created the whole um, uh, fantasy um, world that we're familiar with um, in various genres like uh, gaming and so on. But, you know, Lord of the Rings um, was is certainly the most successful um, work of fantasy of all time. So the two of them together are real culture makers. And the group as a whole uh, could be seen as, as culture making, um, but in different ways, not in one monolithic way. It isn't, you know, it isn't a movement with uh, placards and manifestos. So that um, their their influence is a little more subtle than that, but extremely strong. Um, so, how did the dynamic of the group change? Did it did it just because of old age they stopped meeting less and sickness? Um, did the inklings, I guess they they are disbanded because like only one of them is alive. But did they disband because of death, or did they disband because they decided? Well, if you compare it to a group like the Beatles, uh, the Inklings really, uh, they lasted much longer and they were much better friends even while they were lasting. Uh, nonetheless, they were, as we said, irritants within the group, uh, especially Hugo Dyson. Hugo Dyson got so rambunctious and um, complained so much about Tolkien's uh, elves uh, at the meetings that Tolkien stopped reading Lord of the Rings and uh, other members stopped reading various um, aspects of their work because of complaints, uh, too, too many attacks and so on. So there was all that friction. Then there was the fact that they were getting older and turning in other directions. Um, uh, the Inklings uh, eventually stopped as, as an active literary group in the 1940s, but kept uh, late 40s, 48 or 49, 49, I believe, and uh, but kept up as a social group until Lewis's death in the 1960s. So they did last an awfully long time. Yeah, I think Lewis was really the center of the group. So Lewis, um, towards the end of his life, um, in the late 40s, uh, finally got the recognition he deserved. He was given a chair, um, not at Oxford, but uh, at Cambridge. So he was commuting to Cambridge and managed to have the Tuesday morning gatherings with him, but there was no longer the Thursday evening literary uh, workshop sort of gatherings in, in Lewis's rooms. So that marked uh, a, a dramatic change. I'm curious, are, are you all aware of any literary groups like this today, like little private groups in existence like that? had the same sort of dynamic as the English. Well, there's an awful lot of writing groups around. You know, every time I go into Barnes & Noble, I see a, a group in a corner who are uh, trying to break into print and they share uh, works with each other, but I doubt any of them measure up to the Inklings. But yeah, they're probably not there talking about there. whether dogs go to heaven. But they're talking well. There, you know, there are definite attempts to be inklings groups, and and all kinds of um, of really self conscious um, attempts to follow in that tradition. There's a, a writer named Diana Pavlak Glyer who wrote a book about uh, the collaboration among the inklings themselves, called "The Company They Keep," and then most recently has a book out about literary collaboration and how wonderful it is. 
Well, I'm curious. Okay, speaking of, like, you two are a husband and wife team. You wrote this book together. Um, I'm, and I, that's the same. Like, my wife and I, we work on the website together. We write content together. Uh, I'm curious how that dynamic... I'm always curious about how other husband-wife teams work together. Tell us a little about your dynamic. And maybe did you, have you all gotten some inspiration from the Inklings on how to uh, critique each other or uh, help each other out with your writing? Oh, well, uh, with us, it's been roses all the way, so oh. we haven't needed inspiration. <laughs> I'm sure. However, uh, we do have a method we use, which is, um, well, in, in terms of the fellowship, uh, Carol wrote to her strengths and I wrote to mine without getting specific as to what each of those are. Well, I'll say we, we divided the book into different sections, and then we would tackle uh, whatever sections were assigned to each of us, and then we would exchange what we had written, and the other person would offer a critique and a rewrite, not uh, not in the Dysonian method of, of savage attack, but um, I think much more kindly and, and um, perhaps perceptively seeing what was needed. And then we would just mesh it all together. Um, so we actually... Uh, end up, we think, with a work uh, that speaks with the single voice, but the voice of two people joined in song. Like that. Nice, <laughs> nice analogy there. Um, well, Carol and Phil, where can we learn more about uh, your work, at, work in the book? Um, I guess you could Google us. <laughs> That's the best thing to do, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, then you get to things like the Amazon page where we have both our joint and our separate books. Um, I think there's a couple Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Yeah. Great. Well, Carol, Phil Zielinski, thank you so much for your time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Oh, pleasure for us too. It's been fun. Thank you, Brett. My guests today were Philip and Carol Zaleski. They're the authors of the book, The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings. That's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And as always, I appreciate your support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.